millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tell them that once there was a fleeting wisp of glory called Camelot. Camelot, Camelot. Now say it out with pride and joy. 60 years ago, exactly on this date, Camelot was destroyed in the nightmare on Elm Street when President John F. Kennedy, his brain exploding in a car in broad daylight on Elm Street, his brain splattered over his beautiful wife Jacqueline's pink suit. Who killed JFK is a question that has perplexed many for all of these decades. We'll be diving deep into the mystery on the mother of all talk shows this evening. And Benjamin Netanyahu demanded a ceasefire faster than the Labour leader Keir Starmer and all his revolting minions who are out today on television saying, you know, Labour was never against a ceasefire, making themselves liars as well as gutless cowards, revolting apostates, a disgrace to the very name of Labour. We'll be talking about Gaza, so stay tuned. It's going to be the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the mother of all talk shows podcast with George Galloway. It was 60 years ago this night, a dark and cold night, where I was in Scotland outside in the street playing football with my friends, as was my one. My late father, on his way out to a darts match for his workplace, the National Cash Register Company in Dundee, but based in Dayton, Ohio, came out and told me that the president had been killed. I openly wept and had immediately to go indoors. For everyone of my ethno-religious background, President Kennedy was something special. His picture adorned our walls. My party piece at the age of nine was a recitation of his inaugural address from the first day of his presidency. It was heartbreaking for many reasons. I had fallen in love with the very idea of Camelot, the very idea of Jack Kennedy and Jacqueline and their beautiful children and their handsome brothers and the set in which they moved. Everything seemed like a wisp of glory. Decades went by when the shine came off Camelot. The halo of President Jack Kennedy dimmed, but it never died. Something apart from Kennedy died that day in 1963. 
America died. The idea of America died for people of my generation, at least. We had high hopes of Jack Kennedy, some of which were dashed. But we believed, and I still believe, that he was the greatest of all American presidents, and that his second term would have significantly changed the order of things in America and in the world. We were excited by his promise to shatter the CIA and scatter it to the four winds. We were encouraged by his refusal to allow the state of Israel to become a nuclear weapons power. We were enthralled by his obvious and indeed early efforts to bring about detente with the Soviet Union, with Nikita Khrushchev, then the leader of the USSR. We were thrilled that he had eschewed any repeat of the Bay of Pigs fiasco, the invasion of Cuba, determined by his predecessor, though conducted in the early days of his presidency. A fiasco which led to the shedding of much blood and would lead to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which placed the world on the precipice of nuclear destruction, a precipice from which we were walked back by the skill and by the determination and the negotiating diplomatic skills of President Kennedy and his Soviet counterpart, Nikita Khrushchev. We believed that Jack Kennedy, with his brother, Robert, as the Attorney General, were doing everything they could to clean up the, the nest of mobsters, of Cuban emigres, of human filth that infested the inner circles of Washington, D.C. then and again today. We believed that Jack Kennedy was a good man. He was not as good a man as we believed, but he was better than all of the others before and since. Jack Kennedy was snuffed out in his prime on the verge of what undoubtedly would have been a successful election and a second term, during which he might well have put many of these promises into action and into reality. He might well have been the man to tackle and destroy the Jim Crow apartheid system that even then existed, so that some of Kennedy's circle could not sleep in the same hotels even when they had been performing on stage together. Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin had to sleep in one hotel, Sammy Davis Jr. in another, in the era of President Jack Kennedy. He might well have avoided the Vietnam War, which killed millions of people. He certainly was strongly suspected by the military industrial complex and the intelligence security apparatus of having no stomach for the war in Southeast Asia. He may have then been succeeded 
for a third Kennedy term by Robert Kennedy, by then a senator for New York, who did, in fact, launch an almost certainly successful campaign for the Democratic nomination in 1968, but was himself murdered. All this blood, all this hatred, all this gore at the first Irish Catholic president of the United States. All of it pierced into my consciousness, into my heart. And as I grew older, I became one of the many tens, maybe hundreds of millions of people who studied closely uh, the murder of first President Kennedy, then Senator Robert Kennedy, and concluded, overwhelmingly concluded, unshakably concluded, that the official story that we had been told about both murders could not possibly be true. Even before we saw the Sabruder video, which makes plain as a pike staff that President Kennedy was shot not from one direction, but from two, not from one lone deranged palooka up in a book repository in Dallas, Texas, if at all by that palooka. But his mother came from the front. His mother came from the front. It is now increasingly clear and obvious, conducted by his own state, the state of which he was the president. He did not shatter the CIA into a million pieces, but they shattered his head, his brain, into many pieces indeed. He did not get the opportunity to cut down to size the military-industrial complex, the security apparatus they did for him before he could do for them. Several individuals of interest have emerged over the decades as to who might have been in charge of the conspiracy to kill the president. Alan Dulles is definitely suspect number one, dismissed by Kennedy as head of the CIA after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, and even Kennedy's successor, then Vice President, later President Lyndon Johnson himself. We'll be talking to a considerable expert on these matters later in the show. Let me turn uh, to the mass murder in Gaza. There is a frenzy of violent thunderstorms of bombs, rockets, missiles, shot and shell raining down this evening on the prisoners in the world's largest prison camp in the words of now Foreign Secretary, then Prime Minister of Britain, David Cameron. All of it in advance of a four-day ceasefire, which will begin in the early hours. This ceasefire, we were told, was not the right thing to call for 
People lost their jobs for demanding a ceasefire. Members of parliament, government ministers in other European countries were fired from their positions for calling for a ceasefire. The so-called mainstream media denounced everyone who demanded a ceasefire now as some kind of stooge or tool of Hamas. We were told that such a ceasefire could only imperil Israelis and Israel's security. We were told that such a ceasefire was non-viable, unacceptable, indeed was a propaganda crime against the people of the state of Israel. Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, repeatedly, over and over and over again, denounced the idea of a ceasefire, sent his shadow ministers out to smear everyone who demanded a ceasefire. And now there is a ceasefire because the mass murderer Benjamin Netanyahu himself has concluded one leaving all of these collaborators with mass murder, not with egg, but with blood, all over their faces, dripping from their hands, dripping from their mouths, with every word that they spoke over the last 50 days or so. Words that are captured in celluloid forever, and will endlessly be replayed, as will the voting figures in the British Parliament, in the House of Representatives, in the US Senate, where only one solitary senator, one out of 100, agreed to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Now that there is a ceasefire, Washington is apparently anxious that this is bound to lead to an enhanced presence of journalists and cameras who will record the scenes of devastation, the Dresden, the Hiroshima that has been visited on that prison camp from which no one could escape. How telling. Biden's not worried about the genocide. He's worried about cameras capturing the genocide during these four days. The deal was brokered by tiny Qatar and mighty Egypt. And we must be grateful to both for the work that they have done, showing that diplomacy can bring results. The deal is not complicated any more than the Gaza and the Palestinian story is remotely complicated. It's not nuanced. It is very clear, as clear as a pike staff. The truth is that 50 Israeli women and children hostages will be exchanged for 150 Palestinian women and children hostages. Although the BBC 
puts it that 50 hostages, women and children, will be released in exchange for 150 Palestinian women and children prisoners. Examine that. How can a child be a prisoner? Why are there 150 women and children prisoners in the Israeli dungeons? They were all seized by Israel in the wake of October 7th. Why are they not hostages just as much as the 50 Israeli women and children that are to be released? But it's a welcome step. Nobody should be taken hostage, still less women and children, an act which is forbidden in all religion and in all law. It's a welcome step. But what about the rest of the hostages on both sides? Are they going to be killed in a new wave of genocidal bombing after the four days has elapsed? Are the Israeli prisoners under the ground, presumably, going to die there? Or will this ceasefire have to be extended? Will negotiations have to be entered into and prolonged? Any sensible person begs, pleads for that outcome. How unconscionable would it be to allow the Palestinian children something to drink and something to eat and a plaster to put over their wounds only to murder them at the end of a four-day ceasefire. The truth is, as China's leader and Russia's leader have both said today, there must be immediate, rapid conclusions to a political solution 30 years overdue since the signing of the Oslo Accords. I don't know how the Oslo Agreement could possibly now be put into practice. Now that almost all of the land that was supposed to go to the new Palestinian state is covered with multi-billion dollar so-called settlements in reality, towns and cities. But if the leaders of the world can produce this two-state solution, let them do so now. For nothing less than that, nothing less than that, could possibly avoid a repetition of the slaughter, the nightmarish slaughter that keeps any normal human being awake at night, forces any normal human being to turn away from the screen as they see the mothers and fathers burying their little children, the men carrying their wives and children dead and broken from the rubble. Any normal 
human being wants that ceasefire to be extended and a rapid, transformative political process immediately to bring about a political solution that may last. If you're still supporting what Netanyahu himself has paused, you are a psychopath. You should not be walking among us. And every day we now see more and more evidence of the fact that Zionism has become a kind of mental illness and its adherents, for their own sake, for all of our sakes, must shake themselves free of it and begin to repent and atone for the crimes that have been committed in its name. If only for their own mental health, they must examine the conscience that normal human beings have and see how ugly, how crazed, how ugly that which they have been supporting. There was once a fleeting wisp of glory. It was called Camelot. Let's pray that it can return to the world someday. It's the mother of all talk shows. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Professor Dan Kovalik, the author and analyst, is one of the bravest men that I know. And he was recently trying to get across that border into Gaza. He and others, Max Blumenthal amongst them, have been amongst the greatest of Americans in this great time of trial over these last 60 or so days. And I'm very glad that he's safe and well and able to talk to us now on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, Professor Dan, thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, first of all, your thoughts on the ceasefire, and then we'll talk about your own personal experience. Yes, yeah, so I agree with you, George, that the short ceasefire is necessary. It's important. 
It's a beginning step, but of course it's not sufficient. We need a permanent ceasefire. We need this war to end. We need the carnage to end. And as you said, the U.S. is even afraid of the short ceasefire because it's afraid that more journalists will get in and see exactly what terror uh, the Israelis have have uh, brought upon the people of Gaza. But certainly it's a good step, uh, a positive step, and I hope it's the beginning of something. And it wasn't a U.S.-brokered uh, ceasefire. It wasn't uh, a British or French-brokered ceasefire. Uh, it was brokered by Qatar and by Egypt. That, too, is telling, isn't it? Absolutely. And this is very typical, right? I mean, look, the U.S. is no longer in the business of diplomacy, of trying to broker peace. We know in the case of Ukraine, for example, that a peace deal was in the offing in March or April of last year, which could have saved hundreds of thousands of lives and that the U.S. and the U.K. intervened to prevent that deal from being uh, honored. And in the situation with uh, Palestine now, the U.S. is playing a treacherous role, afraid, as you say, of even a four-day pause. So, yes, we must give credit to Egypt uh, and Qatar for, for, this, uh, for this ceasefire. Now, what happened uh, between you and the Egyptian government, uh, with which I have long and uh, sometimes uh, tumultuous dealings myself? I have uh, oftentimes uh, been in the Sinai uh, and uh, trying to get into Gaza or trying to get out of Gaza. Tell us what happened to you and your party. Well, we had a party of about 20 or so people. You mentioned Max Blumenthal was there. So was Chris Hedges, um, Margaret Kimberly, and another number of other journalists and activists. And uh, we wanted to accompany Egyptian um, activists to the Rafa crossing to help bring humanitarian aid. We did so at the request and the invitation of these um, Egyptians. It seemed that we had gotten permission to do that. And then it, it, right at the last second, which happened to be 5.30 in the morning on a Saturday, I'm sorry, on a Sunday, uh, we were denied that permission. So then we decided the uh, next day on a Monday, to try to hold a press conference in front of the U.S. Embassy to, one, call for the opening of the Rafa crossing, which has largely been closed to people and to humanitarian aid, and to call, of course, for the U.S. to end its support for the slaughter in Gaza. We were there for, for probably 15, 20 minutes or so, and um, at some point, the Egyptian authorities who continued to come towards us, ask us questions, expressed concern that some of us had kafiyas on, some people had Palestinian flags that seemed to upset them the most. At some point, they just came, surrounded us, arrested us, and uh, brought us to police headquarters where we were questioned and processed and let go after a few hours. Um, it was a very interesting um, experience in that it began very, very hostile with them throwing us, literally throwing us into paddy wagons and, and bringing us to police headquarters. By the end, it was more friendly and they actually saw the statement that we had written that they want, we wanted to give to the embassy that said what I said, told you, that opposed the genocide in Gaza, called for the opening of Rafa. And as you said, or you, there are many in Egypt, even amongst the authorities who support those sentiments, and the commandant of the headquarters told us that, told us he supported our statement and uh, ended up saying we were welcome in Egypt. 
any time. So I saw that as a little bit of a, a victory there, George. It is a victory. Uh, in, the, in the dog days of President Mubarak, I was handed uh, a slip of paper declaring me persona non grata uh, at the Cairo airport. And the uh, official, I can still see him in my eyes now, said you will never again be allowed back in Egypt. Uh, not two months later, uh, Mubarak had been overthrown and I was indeed back in Egypt. And as I came down the aircraft steps, I found a brass band on a red carpet uh, playing uh, a welcome note uh, to me uh, for my arrival. So if you didn't get that slip of paper, uh, then you should definitely try to go back uh, to Egypt, Dan, because there are millions, tens of millions of outstanding people in Egypt, the most important, the greatest of all Arab countries. But it is trapped in this schizophrenia, isn't it? It's terrified of Israel. It's terrified of the United States. It wants to bring about ceasefires, and it is humiliated by not being allowed to open its own gate on its own territory in Rafah uh, because Israel will attack it if it does. Uh, this schizophrenia is not good for your health, is it? No, and this is part of the schizophrenia, frankly, that plagues the entire Arab world, right? Um, the Arab world has largely been silent about what's been happening in Palestine for quite some time. And it's for the reasons you say. It's out of fear. It's out of greed. Uh, we know that right now even the Egyptians are being bribed to consent, to collaborate with Israel in its ethnic cleansing plan to send all the people of Gaza into the Sinai Desert. And so far, Egypt has resisted that to their credit. And as is the usual case, the Palestinian people are leading liberation in the region, leading liberation movements in the world. And I think you will see liberation movements come to power in these various countries because of the inspiration of the Palestinian people. And that is why, by the way, George, the Egyptian government fears these demonstrations, these pro-Palestinian demonstrations in Egypt. By the way, they broke one up while we were there, uh, a big uh, demonstration that was planned for Torrier Square that they broke up because they know that the Palestinian, the call for Palestinian liberation is one that could lead to the fall of their own regime. And all the governments in the Arab world know the same. Well, President Arafat often used to say to me that uh, the Palestinians were the 300 Spartans uh, holding the pass at Thermopylae, waiting for the city-states to rise up. That was one of his favorite uh, metaphors. Uh, the, the Arab governments uh, have moved, let's be fair to them. President Sisi has moved, and the ceasefire is partly a result of that. Uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia has moved. Uh, Kuwait has been outstanding. Uh, and then, of course, there are many Arab countries, Yemen, uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, that are part of the resistance axis. So the, the lacunae of, uh, uh, of the open, outright collaborators 
is actually much smaller than it's ever been, Dan. I think that's a fair statement. And I think a lot of that is because of the pressure of the people in those countries who have taken to the streets and demanded support for the Palestinian people, which has been very inspiring. And of course, we're seeing the very same demonstrations happen in your great town of London and in many of the cities in my country. And um, I hope that we will see change, political change in all of our countries because of this. And again, I think that, that you know, Arafat was right, that they are the Spartans fighting the fight that we all need to fight right now. The, uh, the United States uh, government is uh, crashing and burning. Uh, the opinion poll ratings of President Biden are uh, a record low, and they were already low before that. And the young voters in particular are citing his foreign policy as one of the major reasons why they could not possibly vote for him. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, this is a sea change, George. This is an amazing occurrence. I saw one poll that said 80% of Democrats opposed Biden's policies in Palestine. A majority of uh, Americans oppose Biden's policies in Ukraine now. The American people are waking up. And as you say, it shows that it, it appears that Generation Z, the generation between the age of 18 and 34, they are the most enlightened. I think largely because they're the least uh, uh, influenced and persuaded by the mainstream media. They're getting their news from social media, from platforms like X and TikTok. And that's where we're seeing the carnage in Gaza. We're not seeing uh, on the nightly news. And so they're not fooled. This is an amazing um, uh, occurrence. This is something we all should be heartened by, and I certainly am. And I think political change is coming. I think the Democratic Party is over at this point. Biden cannot win this election, and he can't win because he has supported this genocide in Palestine. I've always loved the letter Z or Z, as we call it, ever since I used to follow Zorro as a kid. Uh, lastly, as an American, Dan, uh, 60 years on uh, from the murder of President uh, Kennedy, I don't know if the anniversary is being much marked in your country, but uh, is there anybody left that believes uh, that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald killed Jack Kennedy all on his own some? Or is it now settled, uh, the settled will of the American people, that there was much more to it than that? I think it is the settled will of the American people that he was killed by his own government in a coup. Again, the media would deny that, but the American people are very clear on that. And we have a lot of good people to thank for that. One is, is my friend Oliver Stone in his movie JFK, which I think really um, uh, brought the floodgates open uh, on this subject. And also Cyril Wecht. I, I live in Pittsburgh, as you know, George, and Cyril Wecht, the great coroner, who's been very involved in telling the true tale of the assassination of JFK is from Pittsburgh. And there's actually a weekend long um, symposium just that just ended on the JFK assassination. I think the American people know that their government, maybe that John F. Kennedy was the last true democratically elected president we ever had, that democracy died in November of 1963. I hope it'll be brought back, but I think uh, 
I think that's the truth, and I think Americans know that. Professor Dan, I hope to link up with you in Cairo one day. Thanks very much for joining us on the any, Mother of Talk Shows. It will be great. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. James Giles is the leader of the growing independent group of councillors on the London Borough, Royal Borough uh, of Kingston. He is well known to viewers of the Mother of All Talk Shows, being a frequent guest and in another life. Uh, he worked with me for a brief time. I'm not responsible for any of his views. He's definitely not responsible for any of mine. But I was struck that in this sea of troubles uh, being suffered by actresses, by models, uh, by uh, great actresses like Susan Sarandon, fired by her, uh, her agency for standing up for the Palestinian people. In this sea of troubles, it is a small, tiny group of people that are bringing about these McCarthyite attempts to expunge people, to cancel people, even people who are elected members. Rashida Tlebi in, uh, in the United States, there was a discussion on a Twitter space the other night, didn't get closed down, nobody's been kicked off Twitter for it, in which they discussed shooting an American congresswoman because she's a Palestinian standing up for her uh, people and their rights. Uh, so if they could shoot Rashida, what did they do to young James Giles, Britain's youngest and best counselor? Well, let's hear it straight from the horse's mouth. James, thank you for uh, joining us. Tell us, uh, what happened? Who did it? Who did it to you and for why? Well, look, I co-authored uh, with a former Conservative, now independent councillor, an open letter uh, to MPs and sent it to all 19,000 councillors urging our elected representatives, our MPs, to back a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, nothing should be controversial about that. The vast majority of the British public support that. The vast majority of the public around the world support that. And indeed, the vast majority of governments around the world support that. And within that letter, uh, we did two things. We said, look, we know uh, that the political parties are weighing down on officials that speak out like a ton of bricks so you can sign anonymously but you are publicly elected and so if you choose not to sign i.e make a decision you choose not to sign uh, then we will also publish a list of names including you in the interest of uh, public accountability uh, now in my view politicians should be held accountable for their views uh, but in this uh, crazy day and age uh, that has been, uh, in my view, deliberately distorted and taken out of context uh, to be uh, bullying, threatening, intimidating, uh, and allegedly even blackmail, which uh, I find really quite hard to believe myself. Well, of course, uh, these people want to uh, act in the shadows. They don't want the public, especially their own public, to know that they are supporting the slaughter in Gaza that they are opposed to 
a ceasefire in Gaza, a ceasefire which has now occurred. So you've been punished for calling for something which has now happened. What are they going to do now? Well, I think they're going to struggle a little bit, to be honest. Uh, the local government association, which <laughs> represents all councillors in England and Wales, decided to release a statement to the press saying I'd stood down from my roles at the LGA. Uh, that's blatantly false. Um, the independent leader at the LGA said, why don't you just sit it out for a month until the heat dies down? And I said, you know what, if that'd help you, sure, why not? I'll absent myself from the next meeting. Uh, but they, they then decided to say that I had stood down, which is an admission of guilt. Uh, I've done nothing wrong. I've spoken truth to power. And in fact, almost 1,000 councillors and counting seemingly agree with me, despite this barrage of abuse. Uh, I fully expect to be reinstated to the LGA for what it's worth. And indeed, just this evening, I've become the official leader of the opposition on Kingston Council as the former Conservative joins our group. The Conservatives are now relegated to third party status. So when you said bounce back, uh, I think you were spot on. Uh, you know, and as for these people who, you know, on the one breath say free speech, freedom of expression, uh, on the next, you know, they try and cancel people with whom they disagree. I had a number of people write to my professional employer uh, who decided to suspend me. Uh, I'm pleased to say that that suspension was within two days, of course, lifted on the basis of uh, freedom of expression. Uh, but the very notion that it happened in the first place, I think, really paints a worrying picture uh, for the state of democracy, for the state of freedom of expression, um, and for the state of people willing to stand up for the oppressed in society, which is something I'll certainly never shy away from doing. And my goodness, I know you never do either. Well, uh, it's even more uh, extraordinary when you, if you, if you like, if, when you count the heads, the number of people who oppose a ceasefire numerically is tiny. You have a huge majority of people who call for a ceasefire. You have a significant number of people who don't know. Uh, and you have a small number of people who oppose a ceasefire. But nobody in the world has been suspended from anything for opposing a ceasefire. The people who've been suspended from their jobs, like you, are the people who are representing the vast majority. It's a paradox. It's a funny old world, as Mrs. Thatcher once said. It certainly is. It's rather perverse. Now, I think the cherry on the cake for me is just two weeks ago, councillors across the country here in the UK received an email from Luke Akehurst. Uh, now, for the, your viewers who may not know who he is, he sits on Labour's national executive under Keir Starmer. But he was writing in his guise as the director of a lobbying group called We Believe in Israel, uh, writing to uh, all councillors uh, from his perspective, uh, when people wrote into, uh, among others, the LGA saying, you know, I really didn't appreciate him writing in, the LGA's response was practically, well, you're on your own on your bike, uh, he can say what he wants. Uh, and so the notion that I'm not able to say what I want, um, you know, frankly, is for the birds. And uh, I'm going to keep saying it and I'm not going to stop. And seemingly uh, the vast majority of councillors uh, who have engaged uh, agree too, which makes sense when you look at the 
opinion polls, but equally, you know, the people that must be held to account are people like the Conservative councillor for a region I won't disclose, uh, who wrote back to me that Gaza should, and I quote, be raised to the ground. Uh, The irony was in the same email, they said, but I don't give you permission uh, to tell people that I've told you that. I mean, this is just absolutely preposterous that we've got public officials in elected office having the uh, gall to say something uh, as horrific as that, uh, but as cowardly as to say, this is what I believe, but if you tell anyone, I'm going to personally sue you, which is what they said. Democracy, shamocracy. Well, congratulations on your new position. It's onwards and upwards for you. Uh, You now are the official leader of the opposition uh, on the uh, Royal Borough of Kingston Council. Uh, I'd like to say you'll get your reward in heaven, but I think you'll get your reward much sooner than that, James, because you're doing God's work here, and people will recognize that in, uh, in your own ward, in your own council area. Thanks for coming on to tell us what happened Pleasure. to you, Councillor James Giles, leader of the opposition on the London Borough of Kingston. Let's take a quick break. And then it's JFK from the Oracle himself, Matt Crompton. Stay tuned. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Matt Crompton is, uh, by anybody's standards, the authority uh, on the JFK killing, the presidency that was brought to a bloody halt on this date 60 years ago. I'm so old, I remember it well. Matt Crompton isn't, but he knows more than almost anybody alive. Matt Crompton, thanks for (laughs) joining us. it's uh, an auspicious uh, anniversary, although I'd like you to tell me if it's being treated as such in the United States. Seems to me uh, auspicious, but I can't say I've been overwhelmed by the amount of publicity that, that, that I've seen about it. So is it being treated as a big deal? If not, why not? And what are the prevailing opinions amongst the American people now 60 years on about the killing of Kennedy. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on, George. I, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I've, I've been studying this case for a long time and I've put a lot of hours into it. Uh, but I would say by no means am I, you know, the authority. I, I think I'm dipping my toe into the game and I'm, I'm honestly uh, honored to be able to, uh, you know, have as big of a platform as I do to explore trying to figure out what happened. You know what I mean? So, and to answer your question, 
is it being treated like it's a big deal in the United States? I would say it is. Um, but you know, how big of a deal, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to say that there's that, I want to come back to that point about sort of how the media is now. Um, you know, also you gotta remember it's Thanksgiving. So and media is so fragmented now. It's like, I bet a lot of people, you know, there, there'll be, there will be stories about it in mainstream media. You know, there's a story on Fox news today, there's a story on MSNBC. There are stories about it, but I don't think there's real in, in-depth coverage. And, you know, again, people are traveling for Thanksgiving and stuff. So, uh, in terms of the overall perception, uh, you know, a, a Gallup poll just came out about this last week, a new Gallup poll for the first time, I think in about 10 years, and 65% of Americans believe that there were others involved aside from Oswald. Um, that doesn't speak to whether Oswald himself was involved, but whether or not there's, you know, a shot from the front, essentially 65%, only 29% believe that it was Oswald alone. Um, this is a Gallup poll. So, um, but but ultimately, the media in the United States has been turning, um, and it started last last year on Morning Joe. This is around the same time when Tucker had the thing where he had an insider who said that uh, you know the CIA did it. I think on the same day, uh, Michael Beschloss, the NBC historian, was on Morning Joe talking about Oswald's CIA and FBI connections. You know, and he was talking about it as if it had something to do with these documents that had just been released the previous day. They made it sound like there was some big discovery. There wasn't, but they just suddenly decided to start covering something that hadn't previously really been discussed. So you have that plus the Paul Landis thing going on, you know, the the Secret Service agent that says he found the, the full bullet and that got a lot of coverage on NBC. You know, in the past that would have just been ignored. Um, and then the movie JFK, what the doctor saw was allowed to be shown on Paramount plus that's a film that I'm in. Um, and, uh, I don't know if there's distribution on that in, in the UK yet, but I'm, I'm sure it'll be coming out everywhere at some point. So it's, it's, and also you have uh, who killed JFK, the Rob Reiner, Soledad O'Brien podcast that I think has a conclusion on the side of, you know, being a Warren report critic or conspiracy theorist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, that, uh, moniker has less and less uh, weight uh, as more and more things turn out to have been a conspiracy. But uh, let's not Indeed. go there. Let's stick to this particular one. Uh, um, the, the, the points that you made, uh, you made well, uh, but 65% saying that Oswald didn't act alone, of course, begs the question, was Oswald involved at all? Or was he the patsy that he said he was, uh, a big palooka that was manipulated uh, by others cleverer uh, than him? Uh, why was he then shot dead? Why were the law enforcement officers allowing him to be shot dead before we could hear anything further, before he could be put on trial? Uh, and... Um, the bullet from the front, and it seems overwhelmingly likely that there was a shot from the front, from Zapruder onwards, uh, it's overwhelmingly likely that there was a shot from the front. Ipso facto establishes that there were at least two people involved, which is, I need, don't need to remind you as an attorney, uh, constitutes a conspiracy when two or more people are involved in a criminal act. Um, I'm a little surprised it's only 65%, but within that 
Is opinion hardening? As our poll seems to show, that it was the CIA that did it. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think opinion is hardening to some extent, I would say. But the challenge is this case is so complex. And a lot of times what happens is someone will look at all the information and they'll go, hey, I think there was a conspiracy. I, I, I think the CIA did it. And that might be true. OK, but you kind of have to show your work in this case because there are critics that have studied this and they come with receipts. And if if you don't know what you're talking about, then it's very easy to go, oh, wow, maybe maybe the CIA didn't do it. But there's counterpoints to all their points is the thing. So that's what my podcast, Solving JFK, does is we look at the arguments of each side. Um, I think, you know, people like Oliver Stone and my co-author on the new book that I just wrote, JFK Assassination Chokeholds, Jim DiEugenio, you know, guys like that, they do a good job of advancing the the Warren Report critic cause but they're not going to lay out necessarily every single argument, although Eugenio does in, in his book, Reclaiming Parkland. He kind of lays out the Bugliosi arguments. But I want to get to your, your two points that you raised. Um, Oswald, what was Oswald's role? OK, uh, there's two questions. Was Oswald involved and did Oswald fire a shot uh, regarding him firing a shot? My answer to that question in season one of the podcast, we looked at it, and I think the answer is no. I don't think he fired a shot. And the main reason why is because I don't believe it's possible that he was on the sixth floor at the time the shots were fired. The most persuasive evidence to me to that end is the testimony of Arnold Rowland that he saw uh, someone in the window with a gun at 1215, combined with the testimony of Carolyn Arnold, who says that she saw Oswald at 1225, on, I believe it was the second floor. It might have been the first floor. Uh, I don't have encyclopedic uh, memory, but I do have citations. So anyway, he couldn't have been on the sixth floor holding that gun that Arnold Rowland saw at twelve fifteen if he was with you know seen by Carolyn Arnold at twelve twenty five. And there's nobody that sees him there. The evidence on Oswald, it, when it comes down to it, at the end of of that analysis about could Oswald have been in place, the the biggest argument that Warren Report defenders still have is, yeah, but what about all the other stuff? And that's the point of the podcast is let's take it one by one so that you can't say what about all the other stuff. Let's go issue by issue uh, on the front. So then what was Oswald involved? Well, that gets to a different question. He acted really weird. Why did he get a gun and go to the Texas theater? That's strange. A lot of people think Oswald was intelligence and he was doing what he was told. I'm not just going to make that claim without showing my receipts, but I will say that the purpose of season two of the podcast is to find out who was Lee Harvey Oswald really. And uh, we, we get into that here in the next week or so. Today was the first uh, episode back from, from a break we've been on in a while. Your second point, real quick, um, the shot from the front. Uh, the evidence on that is, uh, now here's the biggest counterpoint. Well, then who did it and where are they and why don't we have somebody in custody? Because they basically fired a shot in the middle of a bunch of people in daylight. How, are you, how, how could that have happened? How, how did they possibly get away? And the answer is, let's break it down. You got Ed Hoffman, who's a deaf mute. And I'll do this quickly. I'm not going to do the whole thing. You have this guy who's a deaf mute who says he sees the whole thing. He sees a, a police officer fire a shot, break the gun down, toss it to a railroad man who has a, a tool a tool bag and he runs down the tracks. And then the police officer shows us his badge and, and, and starts talking to people who are rushing up the knoll. Um, you got Lee Bowers who says similar things, although not nearly as detailed, but he kind of sketches a vague similar outline to what Ed Hoffman said. 
Um, and then you got four guys on the overpass who all said that they saw smoke come from out under the grassy knoll, under those trees, and then they ran over to go confront the guy. They didn't just hear it. They took action. They did something. Um, and then the, the biggest evidence for the front shot, aside from the Zapruder film that shows Kennedy's body going back into the left, is the spatter analysis that you, you have four police officers that are trailing uh, the vehicle, two on the right and two on the left in like a V formation. The ones that are back and to the left are hit with bone and blood and brain matter. The one that's the closest to Kennedy is totally covered in it. The one that's the farthest to the left, he's got a shaft effect. So that he's only covered on the left side because his right side was guarded by the vehicle in front of him. Now the two officers on the right, they had much less uh, uh, blood on them because there was a cloud from the headshot, uh, but but they had no bone and no brain. These other guys thought they were hit by bullets, but it was bone coming at them. So what does that tell you about the trajectory? And then obviously you have the big hole in the back of his head, which is the subject of uh, JFK with the doctor saw. Yeah, uh, uh, definitely the clues are all there. Could this be resolved? I mean, I'm, I was surprised that uh, that President Trump because it would have caused quite a bit of trouble for the Democrats, uh, did not do as he promised he would do in the closing days of his presidency, open all the files. Also a little surprised uh, that the Democrats themselves, the leading Democrats themselves, appear not to want to know what happened to their glorious leader. Uh, their, 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 their wisp of glory that was Camelot. Why would they not want to get to the bottom of this? And why didn't Trump close on the deal? And might he do so if he comes back? Let's start with Trump. Did you hear what Judge Andrew Napolitano said that Trump told him? No. Napolitano said that he, he spoke to Trump and uh, Trump said, uh, Judge, if you saw what I saw, you would know why we, we can't release these files. I mean, so it's, you know, classic Trump vague language, but it sounds like he's saying it implicates the CIA. Who, who knows? Uh, I mean, I, I think Trump wanted to have a second term and, you know, it was probably before, you know, the the uh, Department of Justice came after him. Perhaps his perspective would be different now. And, and he would have a, uh, you know, he he wouldn't act, you know, he wouldn't worry about their threats because it's like, what else are they going to do to him? But, um, you know, maybe maybe they'll show some of the Epstein material because he was on some of those planes, I think. But but uh, anyway, he says he just met him at a party one time. That may not be true. At any rate, um, uh, on the Democrat side of thing, I mean, look, man, I'm not a political analyst, but, you know, it seems like to me uh, the primary issue is just the QAnon of it all, you know, the whole thing of like politically um, conspiracy theorist is certainly a pejorative that, um, you know, seems to be associated more with, with the right side of things. And, you know, Joe Rogan and folks like that, they, you know, but uh, at the end of the day, a lot, of, like you said earlier, a lot of conspiracies are true. It's, you know, I mean, the bottom line is, do you have facts? Do you have, um, you know, the the data to back up what you're saying. And, and if you do, then we should analyze everything. I don't care if it's a crazy claim. We should look at everything. And if someone's saying crazy things, then provide factual data to, to win the argument, and then you can kind of move on. So that's my view.
You're a young man. Do you think you'll ever see uh, the end of this? Do you think you'll ever know who killed JFK? I think that we can get to the institutions and some of the some of the uh, you know the testimony that people have had over the years, and we can get close. I think in terms of are we going to know who the trigger man was? You know, on the grassy knoll, if that's where he was. I don't know if we'll know that because it could be some, you know, there's a lot of different theories out there. Um, I think that's going to be the hardest part is once we get into trying to figure out, okay, so season season two of my podcast is if uh, uh, who was Oswald really? So we're going to go deep on Lee Harvey Oswald, his childhood, Marines, Russia, um, uh, you know, when he when uh, New Orleans is huge, Dallas, did he go to Mexico City? Did he have intelligence ties? Uh, why are all these people impersonating him all the time? That's pretty weird. Um, so, and then uh, season three down the road, we're going to look at if not Oswald, then who? So I think that's the information, everybody. That's the spiciest stuff that people really like to talk about. So um, I just I want to show my work uh, and lay it all out, and that's that's kind of what we're doing on solving JFK. Well, I'll be in your audience, Matt, and I'm sure a lot of our audience tonight will be also. Thanks very much for joining us on this auspicious anniversary. It is an auspicious occasion, at least for people of my age who were alive and who remember it, who thought that they saw a wisp of glory in the very brief, fleeting interlude of Camelot. We may have been right, we may have been wrong, but as Bob Dylan says in his epic, and I mean epic track, Murder Most Foul, America was murdered that day too, not just Jack Kennedy. Uh, the blood was not just on Jackie's pink suit. The blood was everywhere. It spread everywhere. America has been bleeding internally ever since. One after the other, the political leaders of America were systematically murdered. It's almost impossible now to fathom it. If it happened today in the age of uh, social media, in the age of a more democratic media, it would be something that was seen for what it was, epochal, uh, world-changing, country, nation, people changing. Jack Kennedy was the, was the king of America that day. He was the most popular incumbent president ever going into uh, an election for a second term. No one doubts that he would have won it. By landslide, he he inspired a hope in America. He inspired many people to believe in America. His eloquence, his, his looks, his wife, his children, his religion, his uh, apparent goodness made that song, I want to be an American, likely. Most people then prior to November of 1963 in Western countries, probably did want to be an American. But after what happened, and everything went south, and all the blood that flowed, 
the murder of Kennedy, the murder of Malcolm X, the murder of Martin Luther King, the murder of Bobby Kennedy, all in the space of, of, uh, of five years. Four towering figures in the United States who could have changed that country. And if that country had changed, how different would the world have been? There'd be millions of Vietnamese alive that were killed, just for starters, and many, many more. Don't get me started. I don't have time. Final call is from Davinda in Leicester, in England, on Palestine. Davinda, welcome to the show. What do you want to say? Hi, George. Thank you for taking my call. I'm a bit um, nervous, but I've been, I mean, obviously I've been watching you and I'm, you know, um, been wanting to ring, but today I was actually on time. But what I wanted to say was the Arab reaction, and I've quandered over this for a long time and listened to what you've been saying. And my own thoughts is all about self-preservation. I mean, a lot of these Arab nations have always been in bed with Israel, even though they're people who they uh, govern may be totally against it. And I think that the, personally, I think the self-preservation is America will sanction them. They've got a lot of money abroad. They won't be able to travel, etc. Life's going to get a lot tougher. Apart from places like Egypt, I mean, Iran is totally different ball game altogether but you know saudi arabia mm. some of these other countries i think the only they've, they've taken the cover off they're you know they're in bed with them they've taken the do they cover off but you know eventually one will get back in bed but i think the only fear they've got now is the fear of the like egypt especially you know they're playing the game but trying to delay 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 i mean how long does it take to you know get up and stand up 13, 14,000 people have died, children. It's on widescreen TV. Nobody's saying anything, including us, the British. You know, we're watching it. And I think only when, I think the only time they will interfere is if the people of Egypt uprise, their own people uprise. It's very difficult in places like Saudi Arabia and some of these other places, you know, uh, Abu Dhabi, places like that. The population one, and plus a lot of their population is immigrant workers. And it's just a few people who own everything. And, you know, I think it's self-preservation at the moment. And that's the reason for the delay. And they're quite happy delaying it, delaying it, letting Israel do what they want, do they want, do they want, what they want, until the fear of them actually being taken out themselves by their own populations, which is not many of them, but there is Egypt. I mean, if they come in, Iran is a totally different ballgame altogether. They are people who stand alone. And yeah, very well, uh, of course, uh, Devinder, I, uh, of course, I recognize the picture that you paint, uh, unattractive as it is. Uh, but I do think that things are uh, changing. Uh, Qatar, for example, uh, Al Jazeera television, in English and even more in Arabic, has been truly outstanding in its coverage. Uh, for those uh, who speak the English language, it is like an ocean of information and truth compared to uh, a drop of uh, water in a cup, comparing Al Jazeera's coverage with the Western media. Anyone with any sense is watching this war on Al Jazeera. And that is a feather in uh, Qatar's uh, cap. 
as is the uh, thrashing of, of this deal, uh, this ceasefire deal, especially if it lasts longer uh, than uh, four days. Ditto Egypt, which was thanked by the resistance today for its role in brokering this ceasefire agreement. Now, in both cases, in the case of uh, uh, Egypt, uh, of course, openly, um, Sadat uh, opened the first normalization uh, with, uh, with Israel. But the great mass of the Egyptian people, which is almost 100 million people, by the way, the vast majority of them poor and shirtless people, uh, the Egyptian people are a truly noble and great people. I know them well. I've spent a lot of time there. Uh, and uh, their leadership is moving, and it has to move, whether it likes it or not, because of the pressure of the masses in Egypt. I don't know what pressures exist in Saudi Arabia, uh, whether it's of his own volition or, or, or fear, as you say, for self-preservation, but the crown prince, who's really in charge in Saudi Arabia, has also moved farther than any Saudi leader uh, since uh, the uh, 1970s, since the, uh, the oil embargo uh, and, the, and the, the great days from an Arab perspective uh, of that. They killed the king and they, uh, they controlled, they hoped, for the most part, all the kings that came later. But they don't seem to be in control of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He's moving. He's in China. He's in Russia in the last few days as part of this uh, important diplomatic uh, drive, which must now exploit this, uh, this hiatus of this uh, ceasefire, first of all, to extend it, and then to turn it into something that could resemble uh, a political solution that brings this conflict to, to an end. There are other countries, I won't speak of them now, uh, but there are other Arab countries uh, that are openly collaborating with Israel. And that is, of course, a deep shame upon them uh, and has not been missed by the rest of the Arabs, even in their own countries. Of that, I am sure. But I'm, I'm thanking God this evening uh, that tomorrow I will not have to look at new and fresh corpses, new broken lives, new destroyed homes, hospitals, schools, clinics, universities, mosques, at least for a few days. I don't know about you, but it's been taking its toll on me. Uh, and so God knows what the psychological impact has been on the 2.3 million prisoners in what David Cameron, not me, David Cameron called the largest prison camp in the world. God willing, I'll be back on Sunday at the earlier time now of 7 p.m. UK time. I'm remembering Jack Kennedy this evening. <laughs>
I'm remembering the hope of America that he could, might, have been, and lamenting his passing. Thank you for watching.